invite you to come in from the foyer, come in, find a seat so we can get started. We're going to begin our worship this morning as we look to the scriptures, as we, we're going to be in Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, as we see Daniel's vision of the future Christ, in Daniel 7, 13 and 14, he, he, Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days. And was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we begin our worship of him today. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, uh, we recognize you as exalted, as ruler, sovereign ruler over all. Lord, and it is you who we worship this morning. As we have gathered in this place, God, Lord, I thank you for everyone that is here today, those that are joining us online. Lord, I pray that wherever uh, someone may find themselves this morning as they're listening to this service, uh, that they would be, uh, our, that all of our hearts and our voices would be joined in unison to worship you and to give you glory. God, and uh, we, we want to worship you, Lord, in your majesty today. God, we give you the glory and honor and praise. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand as we begin our worship this morning singing majesty. Majesty, worship his majesty, unto Jesus be all glory, honor, and praise. Majesty, Worship his majesty, Jesus who died, now glorified, King of all kings. Majesty, worship his majesty, unto Jesus be all glory, honor, and praise. Jesus the King, Majesty, worship His Majesty. 
Take this time to find someone you haven't greeted and tell them that you're glad that they're here today. of the Father before the dawn of time you spoke and all creation came to be the molecules and planets reveal your great design and died to take our curse so you could be our joy forevermore forevermore you are the glorious Christ the greatest of all Sacrifice than we. 
join the song of angels who praise you day and night. Glorious Christ. You're seated now in heaven, enthroned at God's right hand. You've shattered death and freed us from our fears. And though we cannot see you, you're coming back again. And though we'll be made right when you appear. And though we'll be made right when you appear. You are the glorious Christ. The greatest of all delights. Your power is unequal. Your love beyond all heights. No greater sacrifice than when you lay down your life. We join the song of angels. We praise you day and night. You are the glorious Christ. The greatest of all delights. Your power is unequal. Your love beyond all heights. No greater sacrifice than when you lay down your life. We join the song of angels who praise you day and night. Glorious Christ. Man, he is glorious. And we're going to go back to a song that we did a few weeks ago that I taught, you, that I taught us all. And uh, uh, as I, we read this morning from Daniel, that the Ancient of Days, that Christ, we see that Daniel saw him reigning. He is the Alpha, the Omega, the first and last. He is the Ancient of Days. And so we're going to go back and revisit that song to help you guys learn it just even more so that we can uh, be singing that out and worshiping together. So.
Good morning. What a glorious uh, Sunday morning, isn't it? Oh boy, that sun coming up this morning. I hope you saw that sunrise. Uh, as we gather unto, uh, unto the Lord, um, I've been working on something for a couple months now. It takes me a little bit longer uh, to learn something and to memorize uh, God's word. But uh, anyway, I want to share that with you all this morning, uh, Psalm 100. Um, as, we, uh, as we come to worship the Lord, um, we, uh, we should do so with thanksgiving and praise. Uh, so let me, uh, let me share that with you now. Uh, um, Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful song. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us. We are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. And all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. Good morning again. Good morning. Whew, that was the toughest part, let me tell you. Yeah, but praise God. Praise God. I um, want to welcome uh, uh, visitors this morning. Uh, if you are visiting this morning, uh, could you put just please simple, simply just raise your hand. Welcome this morning. Uh, what, what's your name? Jeanette? Trina. Trina. Very good, Trina. Thank you so much for coming this morning. Fantastic. And I know we have uh, Ralph and, and Jean Brower here this morning. Good to have you guys back. Fantastic. We have uh, um, uh, Dylan. Dylan has returned again uh, with his wife, Anna, and family. Fantastic. That's great. Whoa. Great to have you here this morning. Fantastic. And then for those of you online, welcome. Uh, we're glad that you can connect with us. Uh, so thank you for joining, uh, joining in and uh, tuning in to us. Um, so uh, a couple more. Uh, so we have some announcements uh, to make here. Um, oh, you know, in the sound room, you know, our silent servers up there, you know, I hope that we all remember them. Uh, good to have you here, sound room. 
Yes. He's standing up. Fantastic. Fantastic. We can't do this without a great sound room, and uh, so thank you. Um, so uh, main announcements here. So uh, we have a new members class that continues today at 11 a.m. in the music room. Okay, so there is a room change. It is in the music room. So this class is open to all who have interest in uh, becoming members of EFC Oroville. Today we will survey the doctrinal beliefs of EFC. Please see one of the elders for more information if you need some. But just come to the class, okay? 11 a.m., come to the class, music room on the other end of the campus here. Uh, Oroville Christian School is having a dinner and silent auction fundraiser on February 4th. I believe it's Friday at 6 p.m. Uh, to raise money for its historic sites tour in the spring. Tickets are still available now from OCS students or from the school office. Uh, Jack Johansson, I think he's here, right? Jack's raising his hand over there. If you need any tickets, right, Jack? Jack, how many more tickets do we have? Seven. Oh, boy, we only have seven left. Uh, so if you need a ticket, and there's Carissa Walborn here. I don't know. Chris, Carissa, do you have any more tickets? Yeah, she doesn't know. Okay, see Jack then. See Jack. Seven. That's it. And Matt, yeah, very good. Matt, how many tickets do you have? Seven. That's all we have is seven, you guys. So uh, if you, if you, okay, if you want to go, see one of those two. So the fantastic. It's, hey, they, the kids do a great job with that. It's a great dinner. You know, it's, uh, come and encourage the kids. That would be fantastic. Okay, so uh, the Kingsmen are meeting this Tuesday. I think uh, Ken is going to probably talk about that. Uh, Ken, why don't you come on up uh, and talk about the Kingsmen? My conversation is with the ladies of the congregation. An evening alone, 5.30 to 7, quiet, peaceful around the house, sit by the fire, read a book. How many of you women would like that? Do I hear an amen out there? All right. All right, guys. Looks like you're kicked out of the house from 5.30 to 7 on Tuesday. Be here, be there, or be square. We're going to have a good time of fellowship. We're going to have a meal, we're going to hear some testimonies, some devotional, and here I'll speak to the women again. How many of you wives and women would like to see more accountability in your husband? Do I hear an amen to that too? How about more discipleship and mentoring and building into their lives, other men of the church and the congregation? Would that be a good thing for them? All right, guys, you heard it from the women. So uh, I'll see you on Tuesday right here at 530. Thank you, Rob. Very good, very good. Okay, so our missionary of the month uh, for January is Carol Johnson, who serves with the EFC, uh, EFCA Ministry to Children, Global Fingerprints. So please pick up a prayer card. This is what they look like. Okay, prayer card in the missions corner today to remember to pray for her this month. And if you want to designate a gift, um, uh, just label M-O-M on your gift uh, in the envelope uh, for uh, Missionary of the Month. Okay, so Carol Johnson. Very good. And then uh, Pastor Brian and Alyssa are starting a new connection group for families. They will study the book, The uh, Family Driven Faith, uh, which talks about discipleship in the home. Child care will be provided. So please see the bells for more information. You might want to raise your hand over here, right? Uh, very good. If you... Uh, the bells are right over here, so please uh, see them if you're interested. Uh, the offering box is available uh, in the back of the room. If you want to designate your gift to any of the church ministries, please indicate on the envelope. And thank you for your faithful and continued and generous giving that this congregation does each and every year. It's fantastic. 
Uh, Pastor Greg and the church office love to send out cards uh, for birthdays and anniversaries. Uh, uh, you know what? I tell you, I got a birthday card uh, from, from Pastor on my birthday. It actually showed up on my birthday in the mail. Pastor, that was fantastic. Thank you for the uh, birthday wish there. And then clipboards are coming around for you to, to be added to the list or to give updated information. All right. And then we have a ministry moment this morning. So in today's ministry moment, we want to introduce some new classes that will begin next week. So January 30th at 11 a.m. So Don Remley and uh, Mark Bates, you want to come up and join by, or share about your class, please. Ken Butler and I will be starting a leading a class on James. Uh, we start next week. Uh, we'll be meeting in the library. We'll go 13 weeks. Uh, James is a very practical book where he encourages us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. I uh, will be working through this workbook, Guidelines for a Happy Christian Life. And if you're interested, you can see myself or Ken Butler in the back. Uh, we have the workbooks for you uh, so you can get started a little bit early. James, it's a good book. Um, I've taught it several times and enjoyed it. And uh, so for those of you who are uh, maybe just trying to learn a little bit about the New Testament, a uh, great book. Um, I'm going to be teaching on the minor prophets. Uh, Pastor and I talked about a year ago, and uh, it's taken this long to get us going because of COVID, and uh, I've, I had some surgery and other things happening. But um, I'm going to be teaching it, and Rob's going to be following following up in, in terms of uh, backing me up when I cannot be here on Sundays. Uh, we want to make certain that uh, we continue the book every, every, uh, every week. Uh, the Minor Prophets uh, are the last 12 books of the Old Testament, and those books oftentimes don't get a chance to be uh, spoken to much uh, as sermons because they're very, they're very short books. Um, and um, in Old Testament times, they were put on one scroll because they were so small, they were put on one scroll, and for that reason, they were kept together. Um, the Minor Prophets... Uh, have um, have small length in terms of how si the size of the book, but um, they are rich, very rich in terms of God's message to his people. In the Old Testament, uh, the task of the priests was to teach God's chosen people the law. The responsibility of the prophets was to call the people back to the Lord whenever they strayed from the law. The prophets also interpreted historical events in light of the word of God to help God's chosen people understand God's will for their lives. They were in a sense of uh, foretellers and also foretellers. Now there are three attributes that we'll see as we go through the minor prophets. One is the sovereignty of God, the holiness of God, and the love of God. And so we're gonna begin with the book of Joel. Joel's the second book. Uh, we've already been through Hosea uh, about a year ago. And so uh, we'll start with um, with um, Joel, and then from there we will continue into Jonah and Nahum, um, who will be dealing with the wicked city of, of uh, uh, Nineveh. Uh, so we're going to be meeting here on this side of the sanctuary uh, the second hour, uh, starting next week. Uh, I do have uh, some lessons that are ready to go, and uh, so I'll be in the back uh, on this side, in the back today, so as you leave, you come by me, uh, I'll make certain you get uh, the first lesson, and uh, we'll start next week. So um, hope, hopefully we have a good group, and this is open for everybody. So if there are uh, 
uh, yeah, I, you know, some of the teenagers who really want to get the minor prophets, we'll love to have you with us, but uh, this is primarily for adults. All right, uh, let's go to our invocation passage. It's Isaiah 60, 1 through 7. I'd invite you to stand, please. Uh, you can join me. Isaiah 60, 1 through 7. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around, and see, they all gather together. They come to you, your son shall come from afar, and your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant, and your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you, and they shall come up with the acceptance of my altar. And I will beautify my beautiful house. Please be seated. Please uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Please join me. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you, dear God. Thank you, Lord, for this uh, blessed morning. You bless us with so much. We, we praise you for your mercy. We praise you for your grace. We give thanks to you, dear God. Heavenly Father, may all see Christ in us. May all hear Christ through us. Dear God, may we be the fragrance of Christ to those around us. Lord, we need your help. We confess our sins, dear God. It is often we have cold hearts. We have occupied minds, dear God. We're, at times, we have disinterest towards you. Lord God, we need revival. We need you, Heavenly Father. We need revival in our hearts, in our ministries. Dear God, we desire holiness over happiness, purity, dear God, in our devotion to you, Lord God. Lord, uh, <clears throat> as we have our new discipleship classes that are starting, please stir in us a hunger for your word. May we hide your word in our heart that we don't sin upon you, dear God. Lord God, may your word drip from our mouths like honey. Lord God. May we encourage others with your word. Heavenly Father, we lift up Carol Johnson with global fingerprints. Pray, Lord, for the orphans that she ministers to, dear God. May they learn about grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. Dear God, we thank you for Carol and her ministry and what she does. Lord, uh, we thank you for our connection groups. We thank you for the encouragement that we draw from each other, the accountability, new relationships. Dear God, thank you that uh, we can meet, we can study, we pray together, 
and grow together. Lord, I want to lift up the pastors and elders. Lord, may they be filled with your spirit. May they seek the Lord. Lord, they need your help. May they have wisdom and strength. And Lord God, may they have unity. Lord, uh, we think about our authorities over our land. Think about our nation. We pray for them, dear God, over our state, our local authorities. May they serve you with humility, dear God. May your spirit give them wisdom to govern govern well. And Lord, may you frustrate them when they go against you. Lord God, uh, we pray um, for those who are ill, hospitalized, and homebound. Dear God, we pray for an abundance of mercy, grace, and comfort on them. Lord, uh, we pray for their return to us if possible. We give thanks to you for them, Lord. Lord, um, we lift up this offering to you. We ask that you bless the gift and the giver. May uh, we have uh, wisdom and good stewardship of the funds that you that you provide here, dear God. And Lord, we want to lift up the sermon and our pastor, dear God, as he delivers it. May the word be open to us and our hearts be open to the word. Change us to be like your son, Jesus. And all God's people said, Kids can make their way out and go to their their uh, classes. Uh, while they're doing that, just parents that are taking them, just as Rob said, if you're interested in that class or the connection group for the families, there's also going to be a sign-up out in the foyer. You can uh, just put your name and info on there so we can be contacting everybody. Uh, and it's not just for families with little kids, families of teens. It could be grandparents that are you want to disciple your grandkids or maybe even grand disciple your adult kids. Um, however, however you, wherever you might be in, in uh, your, that stage of life, all families are welcome to be a part of that uh, connection group. So uh, we would invite you just, yeah, if you can't find me, just um, sign up on the clipboard uh, on the welcome desk. So I invite you to stand as we continue in our worship as we sing holy, holy, holy.
Good morning, everyone. What a joy to be with you this morning in the house of the Lord. A special greeting to those of you joining us online. I know that some of you are home recovering from surgery. I know that some of you are taking care of loved ones. I know that some of you are in a season of life that makes it difficult to come. But we welcome you this morning, and we're glad that you're with us online as we study the Word of God together. If you've not done so already, this would be a good time to make sure that your phones are turned off or turned to silent. So that we don't have any interruptions as we go through our time in the Word of God this morning. You know, one of the exciting things about Christmas, now I know we've just gone through Christmas, but one of the exciting things about Christmas is the anticipation that goes into it. Children, big and small, sneak up on the Christmas tree and check out the presents that pile up underneath and as the presents increase, so does their eagerness to get at what's inside those beautifully wrapped boxes and packages. And the excitement grows and perhaps even the impatience as they await that moment when they can tear into the packages and discover the treasures that are inside. Parents look forward to seeing how their kids will respond. Friends give gifts and cards to one another in joyful expression of love and friendship with each card, letter, email, family picture that goes out, there's anticipation as the day draws near. But what would it be like to hear about Jesus for the first time and then set out on a journey to find him? What would you be willing to do? How far would you be willing to go in order to find the Christ and worship him. And when you found him, would he be the treasure that you would cherish above all? Or would he merely be a garnishment for other things that you seek even more? Well, as we continue in our survey and study of the Gospel of Matthew, this morning we're going to look at a group of men who are full of eagerness and anticipation as they seek to find the true and greatest treasure of all, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we go through the story of the Magi, we will see the, the tension that is beginning and will build throughout the Gospel of Matthew as the kingdom of God and the announcement of the king comes into contact and conflict with the kings and kingdoms of men. Well, in honor of God and his holy word, I ask you to stand one more time as we read our passage for this morning from Matthew chapter 2, the first 12 verses. And the altogether lovely and holy word of God says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he? Who has been born king of the Jews. 
For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he, said to, he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Father, as we have read your word this morning... And as you have given it under the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, would you now be our teacher? As we surrender and submit to its authority and as we listen to what you have for us. For unless we hear from you, Father, we've not really heard anything. Would you teach us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Now our text begins this morning. With now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea in the days of Herod the king. And this is a story that we hear often. And, and I plead with you this morning to not let the familiarity of it cause you to not pay attention. To imagine now as we are working through the gospel of Matthew the role that this story will play in presenting the story of Jesus. And as we begin looking at the first verse, there's a few just preliminary observations that Jesus was born, just as the prophets had said, in Bethlehem of Judea. Notice the emphasis on Judea. It's a fulfillment of prophecy, yes, but later in Matthew chapter 2, Jesus will be referred to as a Nazarene from Galilee. And you recall that in our opening to the Gospel of Matthew, we said that there was this storyline that's going on between the Galilean north and the Judean south, separated by Samaria, and how there is a different reaction to this one who has come, born king of the Jews. Now, Herod the king, who was king at the time of Jesus, was known as Herod the Great. He ruled over Palestine as their king from 37 B.C. to about 4 B.C. And so this gives us a timeline then for the birth of Jesus. When Jesus was born, Herod the king was still the king, and so Jesus would have been born sometime between 4 and 6 B.C. And that strikes us as odd, because we would think, would he not have been born in 1 A.D.? Well, there was just an error in the calendar in history, and the calendar that we use was brought into use in the 6th century B.C., and there were some miscalculations of certain events, and so we end up having the Savior being born B.C., 
instead of 1 AD. But that shouldn't stop us from getting to the story this morning. As we see our first major point, then, as we consider the Magi, they saw the star, the God-given guidance. They saw the star, the God-given guidance. So we're told that wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. And the identity of these men has fostered a lot of discussion over the years among Christians and non-Christians alike. Historians and theologians and churchmen trying to find out their identity. And because their story is so interesting, of course we would want to know who they are. And so we ask the question, who are the Magi? And here is the clearest and surest thing that we can say about them. Is that they were Gentiles who had come from the east who were seeking the truth. And the church has recognized the importance of this trip and these men with historically what we call the Feast of the Epiphany, which in the church calendar occurs on January the 6th. And so historically, January 6th ends the 12 days of Christmas that starts with December 25th and goes to January the 6th. And the word the Epiphany means the revealing or the unveiling, the revelation of Jesus the Christ to the Gentiles. But this brings us back to our question. Who are these magi? Were they Persians? Well, I tell you this morning that that has been the majority report for centuries, more or less because of tradition passed down from one generation to the next because of the word magoi, which was actually used for a, a caste of priests in Persia who had an interest in astronomy and astrology. And because there was a Jewish population because of the exile in Persia, and there were Jews living in Persia at the time of Jesus, many assumed then that these people would have heard about the Christ through this Jewish population in exile. A second major opinion is that they were Babylonian for very much the same reasons, because the term magoi is used in the book of the prophet Daniel to refer to the magicians and to the sorcerers who were experts in astronomy and the secret arts and since we read from the book of Daniel that he had a great impact for God and his truth while in exile perhaps these Magoi had heard about the promise of the Messiah through Daniel and the other Jews in exile and that's the majority report they must have been Persians and Babylonians well I'm going to give the minority report this morning because I think the Magi were neither Persian nor Babylonian but were in fact Arab in origin. I find indicators in the scriptures and in early church history that give plausibility to the Magi being Arabs. First of all, if we think about history, Abraham was given the promise of God that he would be the father of many nations. And in fact, he had many children, of course, through the line of promise, Isaac, but also a promise given through his other son, Ishmael, and his second wife, Keturah, who was the father of 12 nations. They had 12 sons. And it would at least be plausible that the blessings of God promised through the line given to Isaac would at least be heard by the other children of Abraham who would have lived in close proximity. And thus it would be that the promise of seed of through Abraham that would bless all the nations at least could plausibly be given first to the other children of Abraham, the Arabs. Now, having said all that, 
let's not get all uptight because there's no doctrinal issue at stake here. If they're the Persians, great. If they're the Babylonians, wonderful. If they're the Arabs, super. Because what really is all that's involved is that the Gentiles are visiting the Christ child. But I'm going to use a pastoral prerogative this morning to just share some more reasons why I think, in fact, we can make the case that they were Arabs. If you wish to learn more, I have a book that I want to recommend called Arabs in the Shadow of Israel, written by Dr. Tony Malouf. Now, I know Tony personally. Tony wrote his doctoral dissertation on the identity of Arabs in the Old Testament and how God was working through them alongside of the line of Israel. And he was a student at Dallas Theological Seminary and then a longtime professor at Southwestern Theological Seminary until he went home to be with the Lord just a few months ago. And I find his case compelling for all the different biblical strands that it brings together. First, the Arabians were those that lived in the Arabian Peninsula, and they would comprise the countries that we know today of Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, and the Gulf states. And they would live in close proximity with those of first century Palestine. Because of trade, because of, of uh, commerce, because of war, because of the movement of people, they were in close proximity for centuries with the people of Israel. And oftentimes working in close harmony. There were even Arabs that had high posts during the kingship of David. And so they would have had access then to the Old Testament scriptures and to the people of Israel themselves. Secondly, the gifts that they brought were in abundance in Arabia. And in our invocation passage this morning, we read from the prophet Isaiah, who talked about the nations that would come and worship the Lord, and we saw the gifts that they would bring. And there's a reason why I had that passage read, because we're going to look at it in more detail. But along, across the vast Arabian desert, there was a tribe called the Nabataeans. They were Arabs who controlled the trade routes. And they, in their lands, had an abundance of the gifts that the Magi brought, the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh. In their study of the stars, they were greatly interested in astronomy and astrology. In fact, named four of their tribes after the constellations. And they would regularly search the night sky for signs of what God might be involved with. Fourthly, we have the language that these men came from the east. Traditionally in historic literature and in the Bible, the people from the east referred to those coming from the Arabian Peninsula. The Babylonians... And the Persians, who of course did invade Israel and did take people into exile, came from the north. And the reason for that is they did not want to cross the vast Arabian desert with their military armament, with their soldiers, but would go north where the passageway was easier and then come down. And so the people of the east are traditionally seen as those in the Arabian Peninsula. And the last reason is that some of the early church fathers said that the Magi were, in fact, those that had come from Arabia. And one of them we know by the name of Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr was the first martyr after the time of the New Testament who died for his Christian faith. And he lived in a city called, that we call today Nablus, which is located on the West Bank. And in the middle of the second century, he referred to the Magi as Arabians. Now, 
that's just for my academic curiosity and for us to tickle our fancy a little this morning, but something for you to consider as we try to put together all of the different streams and strands and lines of Scripture, is there a way that we can pull them together? But no major doctrine rests on this issue. But I find these arguments at least as compelling as the traditional ones offered for the Persians and the Babylonians. And so, until I see otherwise, I'm going to go with it. But the key thing, the main thing, is that they were Gentiles. The Magi were Gentiles, clearly led by God to find and worship the Messiah. And that sets the sign and the example for us today. That we would be those Gentiles who desire to find and worship the Christ. Well, secondly, what is the star? The text says, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. And if we follow the details that are given to us about this star, there's something unique about this star. There's something unusual about this star. How did the Magi know what to look for? How did they know that something about a star rising would in fact announce a coming king? Well, in fact, that was a common thought in the ancient Near East, that rising stars were associated with the rising of a ruler. The Jewish theologian Josephus even says that it was a common expectation among the people of Israel that a ruler would rise from Judea and a star would announce his arrival. Where did they get such an idea? Well, I think that they'd been paying attention, at least in part, to some things that had been mentioned in the Old Testament, in the prophets, and what had happened in the history of the people of Israel. In Numbers chapter 24, we have a prophecy about a future ruler that says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Judah, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. This was a prophecy uttered by Balaam when he was called to curse the people of Israel, but God would not allow him to curse the people of Israel. So three times he blesses the people of Israel from the eastern mountains, which was Jordan, looking out over the people of Israel and saying, I see a great ruler rising out of Judah. So whatever the Magi were and wherever they came from, they must have been introduced to the idea that somehow a rising star, whatever that is, would announce the arrival of a ruler in Judah. And so it has been the fancy of people throughout church history to try to identify. Was there a natural explanation? Was there something in the heavens, in the constellations, in the stars that would find out what this star was? And so there's been many proposals. Was it an alignment of planets? such as we saw, uh, uh, was seen in, in 7 BC when there was an alignment of Jupiter and Saturn and other stars. Was it an appearance of Halley's Comet or other some great meteor in the heavens, such as was seen in 11 BC? Was it a supernova that explodes and gives a great display of light for a period of time, which is really just its death, but showing light for a period of time? Let me propose another idea, and that is that the key to the star's identity is found in chapter 2, verse 3. They say in verse 3, we saw his star when it rose, some translations have in the east, but they were coming from the east, so when it rose is a better translation. 
it seems that we said we saw it, but we've now come to Jerusalem and we're wondering where the king is, but there's no mention of a star. And in fact, nobody in Jerusalem seems to know about this star. And then in verses 9 and 10, what do we see? This mysterious star appears again. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. This seems to be some type of supernatural event, not a natural event. This is a star that appears and disappears, a star that moves and the star that stops, a star that guides people. And what is the purpose of this star? To guide people to Jesus. And so there's imagery then, as we read uh, Isaiah chapter 70, that there's promise of a future time when the nations would come and worship the Lord. And what we see in partial fulfillment at the time of Christ will be, will be seen in full at the re second coming of Christ. And we'll take a further look at Isaiah chapter 60. And there have been, as a result of this, the fact that rather than just looking to the heavens to find a natural cause, everything that surrounds the Christmas story is pulsating with supernatural power. One angel after another appears to guide the story. There are dreams that guide the story. There's a display of glory in the heavens as the angels burst into praise and worship. So why would the star then not also be part of that supernatural manifestation of the Shekinah glory of God that would lead people to the truth, those that God was guiding and leading? And here we have the Gentiles being drawn to the epiphany, the revealing of the Savior. God is in control. But what does that mean for us today? I'm so glad that we just heard the announcements that we have of new courses where we're going to be getting into the Scriptures, both Old and New Testament. And, and I'm going to continue with my class in the New Testament because we understand the importance of the Word of God. And through the Word of God, God has given promises, indicators, signs to guide us. And so we're without excuse today because we have the full revelation of God to guide us, to lead us, to point us to the truth. And so the question then is, are we listening? Are there things that God has guided us to do and we are resistant? Are there things that he has called us to do through his word, people to whom we need to speak, events that we need to take care of, and we're resisting? We have an example in the Magi that they were so hungry to find God, they were willing to be led by God because they wanted to follow and find the truth. They saw the star, the God-given guidance. Secondly, they searched for the Christ, the spiritual quest. Now, you know, I, I love Christmas carols just like you do, but we need to jettison some of them, okay? Because they say things that are not particularly true. I won't get into that this morning because I'm going to start stepping on some toes. But it was more than three kings. Okay? This was a large contingent. This was not just three kings on two donkeys and a horse meandering their way through Jerusalem. How would that have brought any type of turmoil to Jerusalem? 
We don't know that they're kings, first of all. We don't know that there were three, second of all. Beyond that, the song's great. But these men, these Magoi, these Magi, enter Jerusalem. And they're of such a contingent. And they're of such size. And they have such value in what they are bringing that we're told that all of Jerusalem is in an uproar. And so we have the tale of two kings. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And when Herod heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Now it's appropriate that the Magi would come to Jerusalem. After all, that was the capital city. That was where the temple was. That was where the priests were. That would certainly be where they would expect to get further instruction about where to find the Christ to whom the star was leading them and to whom the scriptures pointed. But there was a problem with what was going on in the governance of Jerusalem at that time. And that was King Herod was an Edomite. He was a descendant of Esau. He was a corrupt king, he was a ruthless king, and he called himself the king of the Jews. And he had gained that office through corruption with the Roman authorities. And he kept in office through ruthless control of people around him. He was a dictator's dictator. He killed anyone who threatened his reign of terror. He even killed some of his favorite sons. He even killed his favorite of his ten wives because he thought that they were all plotting against him. He was a vicious and vile and evil man. And next week we will hear about some of the things that he did, which are actually paled in comparison to what he did as recorded in the history books. Shortly before his death, knowing that he was nearing death, he ordered that many families ha had the prominent members of many families arrested and that they would be put to death at the time of his death so that there would be mourning in Jerusalem because the king had died. Thankfully, his order was never carried out. But it shows you how ruthless he was. The one through subversion had become the king of the Jews. And now he hears that there is one who is born king of the Jews. The one who had a right to be the king through birth. And so, of course, Herod is upset. He's keeping close watch on his reign. And we will see to what extremes he will go as we move through the book of Matthew. He was not even Jewish much less one born to be king of the Jews. And now this delegation of whatever they were, these men with great wealth coming into town and saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And you can see he feels the threat. And so he has to begin to plot how he's going to get rid of this threat after he'd gotten rid of so many others. So he calls in the religious experts and he asks about where the Messiah is to be born. And he finds out the answer and he knows what he must do. But we notice a couple of things here. One is that here Jesus is called by the Magi, king of the Jews. And that's right. He is. The king has come. He's brought a kingdom. But it's interesting in the Gospel of Matthew, he's not called king of the Jews again until he's put on trial and hung on a cross. And the accusation against him is king of the Jews. Interesting as to see how that develops as we move through Matthew. So Herod calls a secret meeting with the religious leaders. 
You know, the wicked always plot in secret against the righteous. When Herod finds out the timeline of when the Magi first saw this star, and from that conversation, we, we get the approximate age of Jesus at this point in Matthew chapter 2. He's less than two years old, but he's probably older than a year, and in any case, he's no longer a baby lying in a manger. But Herod is upset when he hears the news, and all of Jerusalem with him, and given the evil nature of Herod, of course they would be afraid. What price are we going to pay because of this evil man? We know that when Herod sneezes, we all catch a cold. But the religious leaders themselves, particularly the Sadducees, they were in control. They were in cahoots with the Romans and with Herod. And they liked the political control that they had. And so they would be troubled because, whoa, they might have to give up their influence as well. The threat of another king would cause a lot of turmoil in Jerusalem. But here's this group of Gentiles making a big splash as they come into Jerusalem. It says, where is he who was born king of the Jews? We have a tale of two kings, a ruthless, violent, vile king, and contrasted to the perfect, innocent king who would not destroy the people, but would save them from their sins. And so we continue then with the true seekers of truth. Herod gathers together, as we can see in the text, the religious leaders, the scribes, and says, what does the word of God say about this? Now, this was the right thing to do. Yep, what does God say about this? But it was the wrong reason for doing it. Herod was more interested in saving his kingdom than he was in saving his soul. Now, what's interesting is the religious leaders, they get both the city and the prophecy right. They quote from Micah 5, 1 and 2, which promises a leader who will rule over Israel. They even add a verse from 2 Samuel chapter 5, which promises a shepherd that will rule over the people. And so in this prophecy that the scribes and the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the religious leaders give, is that there is a shepherd king who will come and rule over Israel. So they're right about who is being talked about, about the place about the identity of the one that is born, who was born to be king of the Jews. But you notice one thing they didn't do? None of them go with the Magi to Bethlehem. They knew exactly where the Christ was to be born. Bethlehem was only five to six miles away, but none of them go. They who had been instructed to teach the word of God did not respond to what the Word of God actually said. It's almost as if they say, well, we know what it, believe, what, what it says, but we don't really believe it. As Spurgeon says, some men may become well instructed in their Bibles and yet be all the worse for what they have discovered. Were they more afraid of Herod than of God? Were they more afraid of losing their political power than serving the king? I think what we learn from this, friends, is a warning for us today. It's not enough to have head knowledge of the Word of God. It's not enough to be able to put the P's and Q's together. It's not enough to have the right statements that you can pass the quiz about. It needs to sink down into our hearts, transform our hearts, which results in actions with our hands. The Word of God takes effect in our lives 
when it shows up in a change box. Head, heart, and hands. Three times we are told that the Magi were seeking Christ, but even if they will not, even if the Jews will not seek the Christ, these Gentiles will. They had set out on a serious search. They had traveled at great distance, at great cost, at great personal expense to follow the leading of God. It's obvious that they desired to find the truth. They didn't understand everything about Christ, but they knew that they needed to find him. They knew that they needed to worship him, and they left everything behind to go and find the king. Imagine the commitment it took on their part. Weeks, if not months, of travel over roads, if there were any roads, no real comfortable sleeping arrangements, having to fend their way. But on and on they drove because they wanted to find Jesus. What are you willing to do to find the truth? What are you willing to do to go and be with Jesus, to walk in the truth of Jesus, to let him be the Lord of your life? Because this Jesus to whom the Magis are visiting here is the same one who would later say in the Gospel of Matthew, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? The Magi left everything to follow Christ. The same call goes out to us today. That there'd be nothing that would get in the way of our walking with Christ. They looked for Christ, the spiritual quest. Lastly, they worshiped the king, the rightful response. Perhaps they had some type of confusion as they left Jerusalem. After all, they had no interest in politics or revolts or conspiracies or anything like that. They just wanted to find the king of the Jews. And perhaps after leaving Jerusalem, they're asking, well, how are we going to find this young king? We need to go to Bethlehem, but where? And then the Lord blessed them. Because in verse 9, there it is where we see his divine hand. They looked up and they saw the star. It was moving ahead of them. It was guiding them. It was leading them directly to Christ. And verse 10 tells us that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Notice the multiplication of the idea of joy. In, in the Aramaic or Hebrew language, you would say they rejoiced rejoicingly rejoicing. It just keeps repeating the same word. But in English, we have to put it in a way that we would understand. So rejoiced exceedingly with great joy is a good way of saying it. It's almost as if now they see it. They're just overwhelmed with joy. The, the fatigue, the trouble of their journey, we can imagine just washing away. They could probably almost dance all the way to Bethlehem. Guided by the star, we're going to find Jesus. Now, by this time, Jesus is no longer a small newborn baby lying in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes. We're told that he lived in a house. Now, Bethlehem was a very small village. And so it's possible that this was the same place. You see, houses in that time would have multiple rooms. And they would also usually have a place where animals could be kept called the manger. In any case, Jesus is no longer lying in a manger. He's somehow in a house. He's a toddler. He's an active little boy running around like every little boy. 
And Mary and Joseph are watching him grow up as a little boy. Are they starting to figure out there's something yet unique about this boy? He's very much boy. But there's just something else about him. And notice the star stops above the place where Jesus and his family were staying. As you can imagine in this long journey, are they nervous? Are they stopping outside of the compound and wondering what will we see? Who will we see? You can imagine as they're starting to take the packages out that they had prepared the gifts and they walk up to the house. We're not sure how, but somehow that we're told they see Jesus with his mother and imagine that their fears are relieved. Their doubts vanish away. Their hearts soar with joy. This is the king of the Jews. And they enter into the place and they bow down and worship. What a delightful and appropriate response. They worship Christ. And notice that they worship Christ alone. The text tells us that they bowed down and worshiped him. Some try to lessen the power of this moment by saying this was simply just the way people showed respect to Eastern leaders. It was just a custom where you would bow in the presence of someone great. Well, if that's the case, they did far better than they knew because they were bowing in the presence of the king of kings. You think about the context. They had come a long way. They were ready just to bow down in a position of humble submission and worship him. And this is the first time of ten times where we will see that people will worship Jesus mentioned in the Gospel of Matthew. So in this first instance where people encounter Jesus, now of course the, the, the shepherds would have encountered him in the Gospel of Luke and they would have worshipped him. But this is the first instance we have of an encounter with Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. But in both cases what is happening? Jesus Christ is praised. Jesus Christ is worshipped. People bow down before him. The one who left all of heaven and earth to come and be the redeemer of mankind. The one who lived out and accomplished the plan of God. And became the sacrifice that would bring salvation to sinners. He's worthy. He alone is worthy. And we honor him as king of the Jews and as king of our lives. And as they worshipped... They offered Christ their best. Now, giving of gifts is very important in the Middle East. Something that we learned in the number of years we lived there. If you are invited to someone's home, you bring a gift. If you go and visit someone, you bring a gift. Gift giving was important. It was a way of showing respect to the host. But notice that the gifts that are offered, they were all highly valued and highly expensive in the first century. And all three were considered appropriate for royalty or giving to people of nobility. And as Matthew is writing this gospel with the target audience that he has, that Jews would recognize that this is the one who was promised to Israel and that Gentiles would recognize that this is the one who is to be worshipped above all. There are Old Testament scriptures that would come to mind to show the foreshadowing of who would come to worship the Lord. One of them we'd find in Psalm 72. Psalm 72, 10 and 11, verse 15, let me just read it. It says, the kings of Tarshish and of distant shores will bring tribute to him. The kings of Sheba and Seba will present him gifts. All kings will bow down to him and all nations will serve him. Verse 15 says they will bring gold. Now, initially, this was fulfilled in the time of Solomon. 
But as Jesus will make clear in the Gospels, one greater than Solomon has come. And if it was appropriate to bring gifts to Solomon the king, how much more to bring gifts and to worship the one to whom Solomon pointed. We read in our invocation passage this morning, Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 to 7. Let me just read verse 6. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Apha, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. And all throughout Isaiah 60, we have the mention of names that refer to Arab lands, which is why I go back to the case, I think, that the original Magi were, in fact, Arabs. But we do know they were Gentiles. And they came to worship and they offered their best. Gold was considered appropriate always to give to royalty. Gold still holds great value in most cultures today. Frankincense was made from the Boswellia tree in Arabia, and when it was dried and hardened, it was then burned as incense in religious rituals and rites. Myrrh also is an extract from a tree in Arabia, and it was used for spices and perfumes, but it had multiple uses. Among others, it would be used to deaden pain. But in other contexts in the book of Psalms several times and in the book of the Song of Songs, myrrh is associated with the joy of marriage. And so all three gifts would be seen as appropriate for royalty, appropriate for a time of celebration, appropriate because they were expensive, they were valuable, they were precious, and they were freely laid at the feet of the one born king of the Jews. Now, the word is not mentioned here, but we certainly see a great image of tithing and giving, of those that just joyfully give from what they have, even going to great lengths and great sacrifice to cheerfully give to Jesus what they have. That's a great example for us today, that we would hold all that God has given us with open hands because it all comes from him and it all belongs to him. And if our hands are open, he can pour more blessings into our hands, and then he can be the one who can freely distribute them as, as the needs are there and as the gospel purposes go forth. But if we hang on to it, what can he put into my clenched fist? The Magi are teaching us a lesson here of what it is to be joyful in our giving, sacrificial even in our giving. They'd come from a great distance to worship and to give of their best. Now as the passage ends, the Magi are warned in a dream about Herod. And so they did not return to Jerusalem. It's a journey of only five to six day, five to six miles. So after a couple of days, as we'll see next week, very quickly Herod would realize something's up. And he'll react. But think of the providence of God. The providence of God who has not only directed the Magi to this place, the providence of God that has not only provided for them and has given them gifts that they could give to the ultimate giver, the one born the king of the Jews, we're going to find out very soon that this family has to skedaddle out of Dodge in a hurry. And the gifts that they had been given would provide for their trip. Providence of God in preparing ahead of time the needs of his people. He cares about all the details of our lives. And so as we continue to prepare to go through the story as Matthew lays it out for it in his gospel, the question that I have for you this morning 
We have temptations all around us. Things that will draw our attention on TV, in the news, in the family, at the workplace, in the neighborhood, in our yards. Where is your focus this morning? Is your focus and your devotion on the Lord Jesus Christ? That he is the wellspring, the source, the joy, the power, the hope, the center of your life. Or are you hanging on to things and still trying to negotiate it with God? If that's the case, if there's things that you're holding back, there's things that you just say, you know, Lord, I got this. You can take this, but I got this. Ask the Lord to touch your heart, touch your mind, touch your thinking. To be willing to lay aside all that distracts you from paying homage and honor to Jesus. I opened with a question, how far are you willing to go to honor the Lord, to serve the Lord, to seek the truth, to worship him with all that you are? And as we think about those questions and as we get ready for next week, as we continue in the book of Matthew, what are some lessons that we can meditate upon? Spiritual warfare is going to be a main thing that happens throughout the gospel of Matthew. And the kingdom of God will be under continual attack. It's under attack in this story. But the kingdom of God will always prevail. You want to have a winning ticket? Enter the kingdom of heaven. Follow the true king. You'll be on the winning side. Worship or rejection How we react to Jesus determines our eternal destiny. Don't be those that know this word but are symbolically in your heart just a few miles away from going to worship Jesus as he really is. Go where that word leads you to fall at his feet and worship him as Lord and Savior. And the ways of God typically surpass or even surprise human expectation. The way God tells the story, we can never tell it. It's always better when he tells it and what he's doing. It surpasses, it surprises, it brings him glory. And as we reflect on who we are and who he is, Jesus deserves our best in worship and in giving, as we see in the Magi this morning. Because as they found out and as they teach us, there is joy in sacrificial giving to the Lord. that we'd worship him fully. And we're going to worship him forever if we are in Christ in his glorious presence with all that we are. And now we're in training to get ready for that day. Let's keep making progress in our training so that it'll just be natural as we enter into his presence one day to just gloriously worship him without reserve because that's what he is worthy of. Let's pray. I want you to take a moment to just ponder your own heart and say, yes, Lord, you can have it and all that's in it. And rather than having a closing prayer this morning, let's respond to him with a chorus. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him.
of the Magi worshiped Christ alone. We're going to close out our service singing, All Glory Be to Christ. The words might not be familiar, but the tune certainly will be. I'm going to invite you to stand as we sing this to close out our service. Steadfast light, and we shall ever his people be. All glory be to Christ. All glory be to Christ, our King. All glory be to Christ. His rule and reign will ever sing. Christ our King, all glory be to Christ, His rule and reign will ever sing, all glory.
Take advantage of the opportunity to interact with the brothers who presented their class this morning to pick up notes and get ready for next week. And the membership class will be in the music room. They will join my class going through the New Testament today as we look at the statement of faith. Thank you for being with us this morning. Thank you for those of us joining us online. May the grace of